Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, well, we are picking up in Genesis 19 tonight, which means we've been through 18 chapters together. It's, it's moving along. And in six more chapters, we'll be halfway through Genesis, which is one of the larger books in the Old Testament. So we're actually clipping along pretty well. Uh, we're in the middle of the story of Abraham. Uh, we've seen the Bible contribute a large amount of time to this family. Obviously, he's going to father the nation of Israel and do that. So in tonight, we're going to do Genesis, Genesis 19, which deals with the destruction of Sodom. Wonderful topic, and we'll get to see a different side of God there. And then Genesis 20, uh, which is going to be another story of Abraham screwing up again in the same way, falling back into his original paths. So we're going to see throughout the Old Testament that there's a number of stories and narratives that make sense both as a story, but also give us a spiritual truth or spiritual insight. And that's how the Jewish people read these stories. It's how the Christian people read these stories. And tonight will be no different that where I think sometimes these stories happened the way they did because God wanted to set up a giant metaphor for our lives and how spiritually we should live our lives. So a quick review. Uh, Of course, we saw the creation in the first few chapters. Um, We saw in Genesis 3.15 that God promised that there would be a savior that would bruise the head of Satan or take out the power of Satan somewhere along the line. And in each generation, we've seen the people failing again and again and again. But at this point, God's intervened and he's told Abraham that Savior is going to come out of his line, that that, that, that there will be a light to the whole world. And God's going to create a family or a tribe or a nation out of which his seed or Messiah is going to come. And this narrative with Abraham has been all about every chapter we go through with Abraham, it's been all about, well, am I going to have a kid or not? And at this point, Abraham does not have his own child uh, through Sarah. Uh, he's got one child, Ishmael, uh, through his Egyptian maid. Um, I'm going to skip down a little bit. Tonight we're going to deal with this idea that an entire city is going to get destroyed. That's a huge stumbling block for a lot of people. And I want to approach that with the right thing. And I hope as we go through this chapter, we're going to see a couple things stand out. Um, notably that God is going to give these people a chance Um, and he's going to help or or offer them an opportunity to save. He does the same thing in Genesis 7. So we've seen these things before. He floods the entire planet, but he saves his people and pulls them out of there. In Genesis 14, we see the the first war on the planet Earth, um, but, and it's knocking on Abraham's doorstep, but Abraham, God uses Abraham to get Lot and his family out of that situation. Uh, we see a new king of Sodom uh, that pretends to command Abraham. Um, and Abraham gives that king all the loot from that war, saying, I want you to have no hold on me. And no, no, I don't want to have any dealings with you whatsoever. And kings don't generally tolerate those kinds of acts of independence. When somebody raises their chin to a king, the king usually tries to find ways to kill them. So Abraham immediately goes and he prays. And in Genesis 15, God promises Abraham that he'll be his shield right at the beginning of chapter 15 from hostile peepers, which means Abraham had good reason to be worried about war from the Sodomites, from the whole valley of Siddam, because they have essentially got beat up by the Persians and Babylonians. Abraham then beat up their army, and now the valley of Siddam is probably thinking, we have this more powerful army right up in the hills to our west than what came out of the east. So that's a threat to those people at some level, especially if they're in the world. And Sodom's going to represent, along with Egypt, the world. And Abraham not wanting anything to do with it is actually a good thing. But we come to this chapter and we see this kind of moment where Abraham's supposed to be taking care of his people, loving his life and whatnot. And God seems to be intervening again. 
And one way to look at this is that to destroy Sodom and the Valley of Siddim and all those cities is going to be a way to protect Abraham and his nation growing for the next hundred years because he won't have a major threat in the east if this happens. But the reason the Bible gives for why those cities get destroyed is because they were wicked. And so that's where we're going to get in there today. So in Genesis 18, we saw this huge interchange with Abraham and the Lord as they come walking up and Abraham steps in and says, you know, will you not destroy this city if there were 50 good people? See, Abraham's got this heart where he doesn't want to see these cities get destroyed. Uh, In fact, he gets them down to 10 people, which is the number of people that would have been in Lot's family from what we know from the word. Uh, And at the end of chapter 18, that's where we left off last week. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. So if 10 people stand up to the wickedness in Sodom, God's promised he will stay his hand. Uh, God's going to remove not only the cities that have gone wicked, but a major threat to his his livelihood. And that's where we get. So we start in verse one and we see now the two angels came from Sodom, came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. Remember when we talked about Sodom before, we're going to see him get closer and closer to the world. At first, he pointed his tents towards Sodom. Then, his, then he was sitting in the gate, gate, or he was inside the city, and now he's in the gate. And in the gate in ancient cultures, that was a place of authority. It's where judges sat. Remember when David was getting usurped by Absalom? Absalom took his position in the gate of the city, and he began to pass judgment and make decisions for the city. It's where the king should be. So Lot is taking a position of leadership in the city and trying to bring law and order. Maybe that's his twisted way of helping bring redemption to the city is if he can act through government or get the right people elected, he's going to save that city and that country. Um, But it doesn't work as we'll see in a little bit. But the gates where the court was, it's where the market was, and Lot's right in the middle of it in the place uh, uh, place of prominence. So now we see these two men, these angels, they get identified for the first time as angels here. Remember, the the Lord is up talking to Abraham and these two angels come down. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And he said, no, we'll spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly So they turned into him and entered his house, and then he made a feast and baked unleavened bread, and then they ate. Um, Note that he rises and bows, but he doesn't run to them like it. So I'm comparing him to how Abraham dealt with the same two angels and the Lord when they came up. Abraham ran to them, and and Lot just rises and points his face at the ground. He invokes hospitality, but at the same time, he sets a time for them to leave right? You can stay. I want you to stay in my house and then you need to get out of here. That's not exactly hospitality. Um, He insists strongly um, as if he knows there would be trouble in the square and he doesn't want strangers sleeping in that square. Why didn't he just send them on their way out the gate? Because it's night and there'd probably be trouble outside the city too. So perhaps he sees that they're from the Lord. Perhaps he sees that they're just good, honorable people coming. We don't know if he sees them as angels or not. He wants to host them and it could another way to see this is he really wants the honor to himself and he's not really concerned for them at all. Lot goes ahead and makes the bread, another comparison point. When Abraham's hosting, he goes to his guy in the fields to get the meat and he goes to Sarah to start prepping the bread. Lot does all the hospitality himself. Um, his wife is not helping him and not they're not really a team like Abraham and his people were. Um, just a few thoughts there. Verse four. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house. So we're looking for 10 righteous men. And now we have a situation where righteous men would stand up to this kind of nonsense because look in verse five what they're trying to do. And they called the lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to, bring them out to us so that we may know them carnally. Um, your versions may have that slightly different, but... To know them is to know them in a certain way that uh, would be PG-13 or R-rated. So essentially in Sodom, note that they say all the people from every quarter, like the young and the old, everyone from everywhere. So apparently collective rape and violence is is a sport in Sodom. It's what they do. It's how you get to be part of the team. Um, 
and they've abandoned what most cultures would call hospitality um, in favor of their selfish desires. So why is Lot even hanging out with these people? Lot is trying to do the right thing and that they're going to save him from this because of that. Um, But he's essentially trying to not get them killed. And that's his goal in this. It's not that he's trying to redeem or save these people or point them to Jehovah anymore. He's just trying to not let strangers get killed when they come to the city. They're shouting it in the streets. They've normalized violence and immorality to a point that they're going to forever be referenced as the city of sin and a city that will be destroyed. Jesus is going to reference Sodom. Uh, People will reference Sodom throughout the New Testament and even today as this city where they've just so made normal sin that God doesn't see, sees them as a threat to his people. So does anyone stand up to these folks? And the answer is no. If you look at Ezekiel 16, just as an example of how Sodom gets referenced from here on out, uh, to look ahead just a little bit, we can see a little more detail on exactly what Sodom's crime is. And the reason I want to get into this is I think sometimes... Sodom gets overly associated with homosexuality because it says we wanted to know them carnally. That's not what's going on here. If we look at Ezekiel 16, I'm going to start in verse 49. And I'm going to wait for my wonderful wife because she gets mad at me if I go too fast. Ezekiel's forward in your book. Pretty much everything's forward from Genesis. So it's to the right. We good? Okay, here's the verse, verse 49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed to abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. This is really what the Lord is looking at when he looks at Sodom. And it's not just the sin of homosexuality. It's also this entire list of sins that this city was guilty of. And in this little passage, we see that. We see haughtiness. We see that these people aren't worried about making their food and getting a good night's sleep. They're worried about killing these people that just came into town. So there's this idea that there's these sins that are just everywhere. And essentially, the abominational lifestyle is one that ignores holiness. You're either pointing yourself towards God or you're pointing yourself towards Sodom. And God's going to use this as an, as an example of what things are going to look there, look like. This world that they live in is not one that is holy. It's not righteous. And Lot, no matter what he's done to try to make that happen, isn't going to work. And we're going to see that they turn on Lot too. And that's why I keep saying maybe he was trying to make things better by sitting in the gate. Verse 6, so Lot went out to them through the doorway shut the door behind him and said, please, my brethren, don't do so wickedly. See, I have two daughters who you've, who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they've come under the shadow of my roof. This sounds worse than letting two strangers get um, raped and killed. I mean, this is horrible. Um, so you're listening to this and you're thinking, wow, what are you thinking? What is, what is going on in this man's head where he's trying to do something that's right, but to do what's right, he's doing something that's even more horrendous. Um, so protecting his, his, his guests by putting his daughters out there is a bargaining chip. I'm guessing these are the two daughters that get saved with him. And if I were these two daughters, I wouldn't be very happy with my dad at this point. I'd be thinking, this guy is not looking out for our well-being. It shows us how far Lot has fallen at this point. It also shows us what a low regard that women had in these cultures. Um, Women were not elevated. So when we see how Abraham tries to honor his wife, uh, which we're not going to see as much of in the next chapter, um, but you see the, 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 the difference between Sarah and the non-existence of Lot's wife here. It's like she didn't matter enough to be part of his story. Historically, Women's rights have gone up in every culture that has Judeo-Christian values. They've declined or disappeared in cultures that don't. And it's just been true throughout world history. Um, And the Bible paints this picture pretty honestly and vividly. It also paints this picture as one of not a good decision. 
Like this is a bad thing to do. You don't trade your daughters to do this. Another way to look at this is it elevates the value of hospitality in this culture. To be hospitable was more important than almost anything. But this is just, at this point, it's just sad. And verse 9 says, And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he acts, he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they turn on Lot. He tries to do something, tries to save these two people, albeit in a horrible way to do it. And then they turn on him and say, Look, who are you to be our judge? Who are you to judge that what we're doing is wrong? And no matter how much Lot has tried to serve these people, he's been with them for some time now, they're so quick to turn on him as soon as he judges them. As soon as he starts to just mind his own business. It's not like he was out calling them bad before this. He's just saying, don't do this thing. Please leave these men alone. They're under my protection. As a spiritual lesson, we see this all the time for non-Christians. They're fine having a Christian around as long as you don't start saying that the way I'm doing things is what I think is holy. Because as soon as you say that what this action is what you think is holy, they instantly jump to the, well, then you must think I'm not holy. No, I didn't say that. You can live life as you please. I'm choosing to serve Jehovah. I want to serve Christ. And they'll turn on you in a second when that happens because it, they don't want to be judged. And I think spiritually, deep down, they know what they're doing is wrong. So in, it, essentially with verse 9, Lot's efforts to bring Sodom to any kind of holiness or order are conclusively rejected. And I think this is the line where those angels make the decision, we're done with this city and we're not going to really save it. So they pressed hard against the man Lot. I kept looking that up. It means pressed hard. So, um, and they came near to break down the door. So they must have been pushing Lot up. He must have been like putting himself between the door and the people and the crowd of people. So in verse 10, the men, the angels, reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them. I don't know if they grabbed him through a window, if they pulled him through the door, because if a whole crowd of people is pressing on a door, almost breaking it off its hinges, how did these two angels get it open and get Lot inside and get them outside? So there's no way to really picture this in your head without thinking some kind of miracle was happening. And then they shut the door. So they're incredibly strong. Lot might have at this point noticed there's something different with these two men. 11, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door, which is a great movie scene, right? <laughs> In 2 Kings 6, 8, we see the same use of the word blindness. That's what God did to the Assyria ar- Assyrian army to save Elisha. Uh, he confused them, but it was the exact same word. There's this kind of thing where they got bopped on the head and they couldn't see what, what end was right. So this is about to be the second major destruction that the Lord's going to bring on wicked people in the Bible. Uh, the first one was global. This one's going to be local. Um, Lot's been living in the world and they turn on him in an instant as soon as he doesn't agree to let them do what they want to do. Um, mention that. So in verse 12, then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, or whomever, whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. <clears throat> For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now there were 10 people in Lot's family. So if there's 10 righteous people, this might be the angels trying to say, do you got your people? You know what you're going to do? Or it could be that because Lot offered his daughters that they judge Lot as not even being redeemable in that sense, but they're going to save him for the sake of Abraham. Uh, grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and he spoke to his sons-in-laws who had married his daughters, so that's four people, and said, get up and get out of this place. For the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-laws, he seemed to be joking. Have you ever tried to tell somebody that the Lord's coming soon? I mean, we used to, when we were kids, some churches would have you go door knocking like the Mormons, and you'd knock on the door and say, you know, the Lord's coming back. 
where are you at with the Lord? And people would often laugh at you when you tried to do that stuff. Did you go door knocking with Mr. Mulchesky? Did he take you doing that? When you try to tell somebody that the Lord's coming back, they say that you're going to be joking. They say this in the New Testament too. Paul warns in those times, people are going to say, well, where's your God? Why didn't he come back? He said he was going to. Lot might have gotten a lot closer in Sodom in the hopes of showing them Jehovah like Abraham did with the people of Mamre. But no matter how you frame it, how, no matter how you try to tell people that there's an immediate danger to their souls, if people don't want to look for that or they're not interested in it, they just tend to laugh at you. Worse, they'll tend to persecute you, like they do with Lot. In Judges, they, they define evil as people doing right in their own eyes. So whatever they think is good for them, they're going to do it, and that's what's called, the, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. And in Judges, that's a phrase they use for what's evil. And in Sodom, we have that. We have people doing whatever they think is right according to their own ethic, um, but they don't follow God's law. They don't follow his word. So it doesn't matter how good they think they are. What matters is that they're not following the law. They're not doing what God's asked them to do. So he doesn't go to his own sons. I thought that was interesting. He goes to his son-in-laws. So he has married daughters and he has his other two daughters that aren't virgins, but he doesn't go to his own sons. Uh, were they in the crowd then? So were lots of kids participating in this nonsense? His compromise of himself, Lot choosing to live in Sodom, to lean towards Sodom, to be part of Sodom, to get involved in Sodom, essentially his kids have abandoned the faith. So his sons are either out in this crowd, because it said both young and old, trying to rape people uh, and trying to kill them. Uh, his, they're laughing at him when he tries to get them out of the city. They think he's nuts. So Lot has sadly lost his kids in this effort to be more worldly and compromise with the world. Living the world is going to cost him his whole family. So the idea that the angels tell Lot to get out of there means God's taking his time to save the remnant. He's having mercy for Abraham. Does the same thing in Egypt, does the same thing in Judges. He does the same thing with Jesus, and he's going to do the same thing in Revelation. He gives a lot of time before he goes to do destruction. He gives people a chance to repent. Verse 15, when the morning dawns then, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. Lot, he spent the night? So God tells him to get out of the city? He's got angels from heaven that just did this miraculous feat of strength and blinded a crowd of people, and he stays the night in this city? So you've got to think what's going on with with him and what's going on with that. Compare that to when Abraham circumcised his people and they put that passage in there and said, and he did it the same day. So when God tells you to do something, he does it right now. That's in Genesis 7, 20, 17, 23. Verse 16, and while he lingered, so they pointed out a second time, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. They had to actually pick him up and get him out of there because he wouldn't have left. And you think to some degree the Lord must really love Abraham and it would have broken Abraham's heart, but it sounds like they had to actually pick him up and move him because he's just not in the right place. Lot's heart is still in Sodom. He lacks the urgency, and that's the sign of a compromised person. When you see somebody who compromises, especially with spiritual issues, they tend to dawdle when it comes to things of faith. I'll get to it, but I'll get to it later. Right? I'll stop doing this thing that I know is wrong, but I'll stop it next week, not this week. When we see sin in our lives, we shouldn't hesitate to get get away from it, uh, to get, a, get completely away from it. We should see urgency in getting away from it. And that reminded me of the story of Joseph when Potiphar's wife is trying to bet him, and he runs from her and she like leaves his coat behind him um, to get the heck away from that situation. He doesn't dawdle. He doesn't linger. He gets away. Verse 17, so it comes, came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Don't look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. You start to think that God is um, laying out a story that's going to last the ages. Escape the world to save your life. Get the heck out of here and you can live. Uh, so God has to actually get Lot out and so symbolically speaking, we don't save ourselves from our sin. God at some point has to save us, but then he asks us to move and turn from our wicked ways. And he asks him to do the same thing. Don't look 
means can also be interpreted as lag or turn behind you. Um, essentially, why would you celebrate a destructive path? Have you ever heard Christians that every time you see them, they tell their testimony of when they used to be sinners? And it's said with a kind of tone like, I used to be so awesome. And then you think, why are you still looking at that like that was good? It's not impressive or cool. You were, you were on a path of destruction. You should be grateful you're out of it. But they kind of want to keep talking about it, keep turning and looking at it. Um, anyways, uh, escape to God's people. Uh, Abraham is to look to the hills where our hope comes from. And literally leaving Sodom uh, of the plain would have been leaving towards the hill country of Jerusalem. And he would have been looking to the hills where his hope should come from. There's three ways to be saved without God's promise. Christians that never leave his will. Christians that look back and dabble. And then Christians that don't go to God's people. So you've got Christians in the world. And you've got ones that stay with the people of God and whatnot. But then you've got these people like Lot and Lot's wife. Where they become Christians, they get saved. But they keep looking back to the world like it has something to offer them. And then you get these Christians that they don't really join God's people. They're not active in a church community. They don't get involved with Christians. And Lot should be running out of here and heading straight for Abraham's camp, right? He knows Abraham's up in Mamre. He knows that's a two, three-day walk up into those hills. He just lost his home in Sodom and probably lost all that wonderful stuff that he used to have um, because the angels pulled him out of there. So he's now a broke man with his wife and two daughters but he should have everything he needs in life with his wife and two daughters. He still has his family. Verse 18, then Lot says to them, and this is the, again, comparison to that last story with Abraham, where you see Abraham protecting his family, guarding after his family. Look at what Lot does. Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight. Thanks for saving me. You've increased your mercy, which with you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains lest some evil overtake me and I die. You just got saved by angels from heaven. What do you possibly think is going to get you in those hills? Lot fears that God won't protect him. The hills look scary and he doesn't trust God. Lot prays for himself where Abraham prays for other people. What looks scary here is where Abraham's living. So maybe he's terrified to go back to Abraham. He doesn't want to be in, be around somebody who he deems is holy or something. I don't know. Lot then asks for less than what God has willed for him. He begs to be comfortable and not to have hardship. But God has so much more and could have so much more in stores from there. That's the opposite of praying, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. Lot says, please, my will. Lot calls the Lord's and himself a servant. Notice he says, look, I'm a servant. But he's saying it almost tongue in cheek because a servant does what their master says to do. And Lot doesn't do that. He says, I'm your servant, Lord. Please do what I want you to do. And it's the opposite of being a servant. He speaks, therefore, in a lie when he calls himself a servant. So he's lying to God when he does that. How many times do we do the same thing? God calls us to do something, but we're so fearful about doing it that we pray for some other alternative. Lord, give us something else. Compare that to Jesus in the garden when he says, Lord, if this is the cup you should give to me, then I'll bear it. But if there's any way I could not, Please let me know. At the end of the day, when we look at Lot and his character, it's no wonder that God wanted Abraham to shake this guy off. Right? Get rid of this guy. Don't keep him in your life. Don't have him hang out with your people. Just let him go to Sodom if that's where he wants to go. But Abraham praying for him successfully intercedes from the last chapter. Verse 20. See now this city is near enough to flee to. And this is a little one. Let, please let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. For I cannot do anything until you arrive there in, eight, in the 1825 cannot's an interesting word it's that because god has given these command to these angels and that command must have included you gotta leave lot's family alone save the ones you can uh, i think it's interesting that he lets lot go to the city another act of mercy um, 
So when Abram asked God if he would judge the righteous with the wicked, this is our answer. No, God doesn't judge the righteous with the wicked. He gets the righteous, even people like Lot, like maybe righteous people, he still saves them and gets them out of there for the sake of Abraham's prayers and for the sake that Lot was trying to save these two guys at the very beginning of the story. Verse 23, the sun had risen up on the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Zoar, by the way, in Hebrew means insignificant. It's a little city. It does not matter. That's what the world amounts to, I think, from God's perspective, is, you know, Lot, you can have your insignificance. So literally translated, Lot is asking God to escape to insignificance. Lord, thanks for saving me. Can I please be insignificant? And I, I wonder and I worry, and I might sound like one of those soapbox Big Ten people, how many people in America are making that prayer right now? Lord, please just let me, thanks for saving my soul, but I just want to be insignificant. I don't want to matter. Let me just go hide out where I don't ever have to take a risk. I don't ever have to have fear. I don't ever have to have discomfort, but I really just, thanks for saving me. And it's a really scary thought if you think of the story of Sodom as a spiritual metaphor for what we are facing when we get saved is that option to look towards the world. Verse 24, then the Lord rained brimstone and fire this is where the phrase fire and brimstone comes from i don't even have to do any looking up for that on sodom and gomorrah and on and from the lord out of the heavens so he overthrew these cities those cities all the plain all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground we'll come back to that first of all the lord reigned and this is from the lord these are two manifestations of God. So the Lord rained fire and brimstone and the Lord out of, from the Lord out of the heavens. So they begin and end the sentence with the Lord doing it. There is no way to read this sentence and not think that the Lord is making this happen. The Lord is actually bringing the destruction. Brimstone is an interesting term that we've kind of seen in the Bible, but nowhere else. It's generally associated with lava or molten, melted rock. So there should be volcanic activity in this region. And lo and behold, there's plenty of it. Um, Josephus actually calls this valley of Siddam the asphalt sea. It naturally emerges from the ground here when the tectonic plates split. In fact, there's a huge split that goes right from the valley of Siddam all the way through the hills of Jerusalem. So they believe, some people believe when the temple curtains split after Jesus was crucified, that that was a volcanic thing that actually moved the foundations of the temple. Um, So there's lots of volcanic activity in this area. You have three major continents that connect on this area. Uh, Fire and brimstone raining down, however, is interesting. Lightning could be a possibility for this. That could be a word they gave to it back then. Or it could just be God's supernatural magic fire that comes right out of heaven. Um, This area right now today is called the Dead Sea because nothing grows on the ground in this area. It's completely salinated. It's all given up. If we look at, it's the lowest spot on the surface of the earth, which is kind of cool. You're not in your head. Have you been here? Okay. You can float in the Dead Sea because it's salinated, which is interesting. The Jordan River, which separates Israel from the rest of this area, actually comes out of springs up by the Sea of Galilee and goes straight down to the Dead Sea. It doesn't actually exit to any ocean. So the river dries up before it actually hits the ocean. So any mineral content that's in it actually dries up and stays on the land there. So there's massive deposits of salt. In fact, Israel is one of the top exporters of salt in the world. But they get different kinds of salt, and it's the only place on Earth where they get different kinds of salt because they're not just getting ocean salt because there isn't an ocean. It's actually small amounts of river salt that come down. There's on the southwest end of this area... There's a mountain of salt that's about 700 meters high and about five miles long. And it's not table salt, it's a particular kind of salt, which is also cool. It's potassium nitrate and potassium promagrate. And if you put potassium nitrate and potassium promagonate together with any sort of animal fat, you have what's called an explosive situation. And if these people of the city were doing herds of cattle and sheep like Abraham were, they would have been sacrificing these animals. What would be the best place to dump the animal remains? 
probably on that giant mountain of salt that sits at the end of the Dead Sea from this river that's been drying up. When you put all those things together, all you need is a little bit of fire and it turns into glycerol plus two kinds of salt equals literal fireworks. So it could be very simply, even today, if you coat or dump a bunch of animal fat on those two kinds of salt and a lightning bolt hits it, it would literally explode and rain down fire all over the place. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thing. That's the scientific answer. It could just be a magic thing from God or volcanic activity too. But I love these things when you see that and you think, well, if that's the case, then there should be something there. So even today, the Dead Sea is one of the saltiest bodies of water in the world. It's 34% salinity, which means most big, thick people like me even can float on it like a bubble. So it's really fun to jump in because it's not like real water. Um, in comparison, that's about 10 times more salty than any ocean. So this becomes the Vale of Siddam. There would have been five cities in this area at that time that we've seen before. It would have been beautiful because in Genesis 13, 10, this is the land that Lot picks because he thinks it's better looking than the, the hills that Abraham were in. And that it drove these cities to be prosperous enough to have a war with Persia and Babylonian cities. So they were big enough and strong enough to actually have a war back in the past chapter. <clears throat> and about 10 years ago, they were doing archaeological digs because theoretically there should be about five major cities in this area. Lo and behold, about 10 years ago, archaeologists did find the remains of five massive cities in the Vale of Siddam or in this region around the Dead Sea. They haven't identified the names of the cities because to do that, they want to find a tablet, cuneiform, a coin, or something that identifies the name of the cities. So they don't know which one's which, but they do figure there would have been about 500,000 people living in these cities at this time uh, before they were destroyed. And they appear to be destroyed either by war or fire and brimstone. Something burned them to the ground. And they can see that just because the rocks have remains of burns. Then we get to verse 26. <clears throat> And this is probably one of the more famous scenes in the Bible. Verse 26, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. Um, in uh, 1917, they were told not to look back. So Lot's wife disobeys. Uh, there are tons of pillars of salt in this region of the world. There's even a few that the Arabs still call Lot's wife. So if you Google search Lot's wife, They'll have pictures of little salt, rocky piles, whatever. The, I'm sure for tourist reasons, they, they, the, the real one is in somebody's backyard and they'll charge you the low, low price of $5, five shekels to go look at it. Perhaps the greatest consequence of loving the world is that you continue to look at it. You can't turn your eyes from it. I remember when we as a family, we were really into sports and so were my cousins and my uncles and aunts and other cousins and the whole family. And that's what we talked about. And one year we came back and they wanted to know talk sports and we weren't able to because we just weren't watching sports much anymore. Neither of my kids got into it. So we stopped being into it as a family. But it's amazing when you stop looking at the world, how just devastating that is to your relationships with people with that's all that they can look at because they don't understand why you wouldn't watch football. Well, football's not sinful. For you, it's not. For me, I'd rather spend time with my kids. I choose this. But when you choose this, they, that seems to be a judgment on people who don't choose that. Um, and then you wonder, well, maybe that is kind of a sin for you because you seem to have an issue with the fact that people don't do it. I also think of this. If the alarm were to go off right now in the house or in your house at night and you had to leave the city, you had angels grabbing your arms, getting you out of there, what would you grab? And I think that's what's going on with Lot's wife right now. If you try to put yourself inside of her head, she just left behind her kids, her sons, her stuff, her house. And to look back at that stuff, um, what are the sorts of things you would want to look back or turn back on if you had to leave? Jesus was talking about when he would come back in Luke 17. And he said, In that day he which shall be upon the house stuff housetop and his stuff in the house let him not come down to take away his stuff 
He that's in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. It's an odd little sentence that Jesus throws in there, but he's basically saying at the end of days when Jesus returns, no matter where you're at, don't go back for your stuff. It's just stuff. And that's one of those things where are there things that you would not be able to let go if God called you? If God called you right now, are there things you'd have to go back for? Um, And Jesus is making that point, and then he basically throws in that little sentence. Remember Lot's wife? In other words, Jesus interpreted this verse saying she had stuff she had to go back for. She had stuff she didn't want to let go. When God does judge, we need to know that the righteous are saved. God is just when he does this kind of thing. Um, And spiritually speaking, we shouldn't want what the world has, and we shouldn't mourn for it when it passes. Um, As much as that's going to be hard for people and, and whatnot, if you believe God is good and just, and he's redeemed and saved the people that needed to be saved, you also have to then accept that when God does destroy things, it's God knows what he's doing when he does that. It's a hard message. It's a tough thing to hear sometimes. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Now I've heard this verse misused a ton. Look, Abraham got up early in the morning and did his Bible study. So everybody who's holy should get up early in the morning and do their Bible study. That's what my wife has said to me for 25 years. (laughs) I don't know if that's what's being said here, but that's one interpretation by a certain number of people that I think are taking it way out of context. But Abraham apparently was an early riser and did his Bible studies in the morning. And I love that he goes to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. The Lord may or may not be there, but Abraham keeps going back. We saw him do that when he came out of Egypt. He went back to where the Lord was. And I think that's part of what devotions are all about in our private life and our personal life is that we go to where do we, we meet the Lord. And if we meet the Lord in silence and prayer and meditation and studying his word, we should keep going back to that spot um, and wait upon him each day. So Abraham went, back, went early in the morning to the place where he'd stood before the Lord. And then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward the, all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass that when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. And when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt, went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. I just love that image. Smoke and overthrow give clues to what this might have been. They also lend some validity to the volcanic eruption argument of how they were destroyed. Where Abraham was up in Mamre would have been about 10 to 15 miles uh, from Hebron, down to those city valleys. It's an easy thing to see because it's all downhill. Um, Notice here too that God doesn't destroy Abraham from looking at the cities. I thought that was kind of interesting. Like like Lot's wife, we don't really have her name, but she gets turned into a pillar of salt, but apparently Abraham does not get turned into a pillar of salt, Um, but then he was never commanded to not look back. So Yeah, one more thought on uh, this whole idea of, of Sodom and how it gets referenced. Um, I thought it'd be good to bring one from Jesus. So if you go to Luke 17, this is a longer passage. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Sadly, they're not alphabetical. Luke 17, 26, as it was in the days of Noah, so will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed all of them. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built, and on the day the Lord went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed." We're promised another one of these destruction days to come. It's pretty hard to get around that biblical message that God will come and he will judge. And it's also the most difficult message to talk to even with Christians that want to kind of be compromised with the world. It's a tough message to talk about with people that haven't given their lives to the Lord. Um, It's an extremely difficult message for us to even handle because even Abraham was praying for saving these cities. It's hard, I think, for us humans to think of other humans getting killed. Um, but it's also part of what Jesus preached. And he said that it would be 
that God's destroyed the world with Noah, this situation with Lot and Sodom, and it's going to happen again when he returns. Verse 30. Uh, then Lot went up out of Zoar in significance, and he dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar, and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. So he's gone from being super wealthy, sitting in the gate, and now he's living in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, the daughters, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom on all the earth. They're young ladies, they would like to know a man. Lot is still surrounded by people who look to the world. Note how they compare it to the customs of the earth. Well, this is what everybody does. So they um, they still have their eyes on the world too. So Lot's, we're down to maybe one person in Sodom that was righteous, but given that Lot tried to give his daughters away to get raped and killed, we're pretty much at zero people in Sodom that were righteous and good people. After asking to be in the city, he's now in a cave. Maybe the people of Zawar kicked him out. Um, and note that they have enough wine to get drunk. So when they left Zawar, they must have had, like, the one thing they brought with them must have been, like, alcohol. Or they have, I don't know how they got to a cave with this much alcohol. Anyways, verse 32, Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that may, we may preserve the lineage of our father. What a horrible excuse for such a horrible thing. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. And then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The Bible never holds back on the facts of life. If they were trying to build heroes, this is not the way to do it. For me, I find that refreshing. When you read other like religious texts, they hyper-elevate their heroes. And I kind of find it refreshing that the Bible just tells it like it is, not trying to show anything, because this doesn't really speak to God's character. It speaks to Lot's lack of character and his daughters. Sin isn't hidden. It's laid bare. The Bible is completely R-rated. So... That's what we have here. How much do you have to drink to have a blackout? Hopefully none of you know this. But you have to drink a considerable amount to where the alcohol in your body can't be consumed by the liver. That's when you start getting tipsy. But you have to keep drinking to the point where your brain doesn't get oxygen anymore. Usually when people blackout, they just go to sleep. They're not totally capable of actually functioning. So the idea of a blackout is kind of the myth of people that do really dumb things when they're drunk, and then they try to make an excuse for it the next day. Oh, I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, you did. If you blacked out, that means oxygen doesn't get to your brain, and you pretty much are passed out on a bed. You're not doing these kinds of things. So there's no moral boundaries here for Lot's daughters or Lot on either side of this. Lot doesn't get out of this one scot-free. He knows his wife has turned into salt, and it seems that his daughters are far more focused on the customs of the world than the customs of Jehovah. Lot has been a horrible husband and a horrible parent. Compare that to how Abraham's taking care of hundreds of people that live under him. The daughters must have known that Lot wouldn't agree with this normally. Um, they don't trust God to find them husbands. The reaction from Lot... Um, isn't exactly what you expect. Um, and we're going to see this chapter end up just kind of with a piece here. And this is really the last we're going to hear of Lot. So it's kind of the end of a line of storyline for the Bible. Um, to the Jewish people, Moab and Ammon uh, would have represented thousands of years of war for the Jewish people. So reading this story would have been a nice jab at them. In fact, if a Moab, Moabite or an Ammonite would read the Bible, they'd read these next couple verses and be horribly offended by them. Because it's basically saying your entire group of people was parented by incest and this horrible act of sin. Verse 36, so both daughters, both the, both the, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab, which means of his father. 
And he is the father of the Moabites to, to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son called his name, Ben-Ami, son of my people. And he is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. So we kind of see that. For now, Abraham has another when he does an intercessory prayer. It saves his, his uh, nephew Lot. In comparison, Lot has lost everything. And he's now um, a parent and a grandparent at the same time, which is wrong. And then Lot's life is pretty much ended in this ruinous kind of situation. That's the end of Lot's story. Abraham, on the other hand, is not pitch perfect. In chapter 20, Abraham, again, in verse 1, journeys from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Perhaps he didn't want to have to keep looking at the destroyed cities of Siddam. So maybe he thought it's time to move on. He's also still nomadic. He's not really built a house for himself. And Gerar is the areas where the Philistines would be later. So Abraham's still living amongst the world, but not living with the world like Lot did. Now Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. He does the same thing he did in Egypt. So it's the second time in Genesis 12 he does this, and Egypt rebukes him. It's a bad representation for a holy man. Uh, Sarah would be 90 years old at this point, which says something about what kind of looker she was. (laughs) Some people even believe that when God was working a miracle to make her ready to make a baby again, that that would have rejuvenated her whole body in a miraculous way. Um, So it might have been that she had this amazing vegetable diet or she's doing the Atkins thing or something like that, but she's still doing well for herself and attracts the eye of all these foreign kings. Um, Abraham, this seems to be an ongoing concern for him. He's, I think Abraham maybe was ugly, and this is my theory, this is not biblical at all, <laughs> and he married somebody way above his grade. So he's just thinking to himself, I'm probably not good looking enough to really keep my wife, and I have to worry about these situations. Or um, he honestly thinks this is some sort of strategy that'll work. Maybe it's worked for him with lots of other people, and these are just the two instances where it doesn't work for him. So who knows, but why he keeps going back to it is probably an example of, it doesn't matter how old you are, you're never really exempt from those temptations and sins that you have been in your youth. Getting older does not make Abraham less capable of sin than it was before. Verse three, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you're a dead man because of the woman who you've taken, for she is a man's wife. Translated, this is hilarious. R was inserted for language, so indeed you a dead man is actually a better translation. It gets even better though. And actually all of the to him, indeed you are a dead man is actually only one Hebrew word, muth. So basically he comes to Abimelech in a dream and he says muth, uh, which is to die. You're dead, dude. You're done. Um, And it is, I think, for God, when we're in sin, it's the equivalent to death. We're either life in Christ or we're death in our own sin. Ancestry is at stake here. Again, if Sarah's getting messed around with by Abimelech, that puts into question the line of Messiah. God's going to step in. Abraham's being an idiot, so God steps in with Abimelech, which is actually pretty cool. I think that's encouraging. But the Lord has to intervene or his promises are in question. Verse four, but Abimelech did not come to her and he said, Lord, I will slay, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did you not say to me, she is my sister and she, even she herself, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have, I have on my hands, I have done this. In other words, Abimelech says, God, I'm innocent here. They said, he said it was his sister. He let her come stay with me. She's been living with the harem. Um, Come on, this isn't really, I didn't do anything horrible here. And God said to him in a dream, yeah, I know you did this in the integrity of your heart for I have withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Later, we're going to see that Abimelech's sick. So he must've been so sick that he wasn't able to go and and have intercourse with, with Sarah in this time. So God has protected him. And God wants to make sure that everyone knows this. So God's hand is at work. Abimelech's working with them. Abimelech's letting Abraham graze his stuff on his land. So he's probably a good and just king, or at least what we have 
Um, and in verse 17, he's going to heal Abimelech. So it looks like Abimelech and all his household are struck and ill uh, during this time. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. So God says that, so we're looking for Abraham to pray. But if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die, and all you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called his servants, and told all these things in their hearing. So he's making it clear to everyone. And then the men were much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done deeds to me that ought not to have been done. Shame on you, Abraham. You're not representing Jehovah right now. You're doing things that are just horrible to people. Then Abimelech said to Abram, what, if, what did you have in view that you've done this thing? In other words, what were you thinking? And that's what most parents say to their kids at some point or another. What were you thinking? And Abimelech the king brings Abraham in and says, what were you thinking here? What was the plan? I think it's wonderful. And one of the unique parts about the Christian faith that is really unique to, to other religions we're not just supposed to be good and righteous and just to each other in the faith. We're actually supposed to be just and good to people outside the faith too. It doesn't change. Like righteous action, this is against Abraham, but he's doing it to a pagan king. Um, But God seems to not be okay with that. And this pagan king is giving Abraham a lesson on righteousness. And the pagan king's right, and the prophet of God is actually in the wrong. Abraham still held up as a man of faith, but the Bible honestly points out his, his failings. And again, this is another example of the Bible doesn't cut corners and it doesn't try to dress up people more fancy than they are. In some ways, that makes God have the glory because Abraham certainly doesn't deserve it. Another lesson in that is that God blesses imperfect people. And we've talked about that before. We're going to see that theme come up through the whole Bible. Verse 11, And Abraham said, because I thought, surely the fear of God's not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go. Say of me, he's my brother. Just do me that kindness. Okay, this is not an apology. This is a good role model of how not to respond when someone in authority has reproved you or rebuked you for your behavior. You do not make excuses. But this is a giant excuse. He blames God. God caused caused me to God caused me to wander. He didn't cause you to wander. He didn't tell you to wander to Philistine and Gerar. So he's blaming God and he didn't tell him to do that. Um, He's saying, I thought the fear of God was not in this place. He's blaming the Biblix people. Well, you're not godly people, so I figured you'd just kill people wantonly. Um, and that's not the case either. The word wander is ta'a. It's the first use of the word in the Bible. And again, Genesis is full of firsts. So that's the first time we're going to see that Hebrew word. The other, the other times, in fact, every other time it's used throughout the Bible, it's a negative thing. So Abraham may be slips up here and says the wrong word, but he actually says the right word. When he says, God caused me to wander, he's saying, God caused me to err. That's how it gets interpreted 17 other times, or to go astray in a sinful way another 12 times. Um, And the rest of the times it has to do with being deceived or being seduced. God seduced me to, to go astray. God led me out of this place. Um, Abraham, no, that's not how that works. Hebrews have other words they can use. They actually have, I think, six different words for wandering, and five of them are positive words to wander about. Um, But Abraham is actually blaming God for the most negative of the Hebrew words for wander here. He's saying, God caused me to go astray. This is not an apology. It's the worst kind of excuse. It leaves Abimelech in need of continuing to fix these things. Abimelech just heard from God, so he wants to make this right, and Abraham's blaming his people and blaming God. And Abimelech's like, I just want to get rid of you. So what do I have to do to get rid of you? And in verse 14, we start to see what he does. Then Abimelech took sheep, oxen, male and female servants, and gave them to Abraham. 
and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. You can take your sheep wherever you want to go. Then he turns to Sarah. This is interesting because I think at this point Abimelech's about had it with Abraham. And he said, Behold, I have given your brother, which is kind of a slight, a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you, not Abraham, before all who are with you and before everyone. And thus she was rebuked. I want to get back to that word rebuke too. Abimelech gives a really generous gift here. Uh, He wants to show that he's on good terms. He wants to make an extremely public face saying, I didn't touch this woman. I never had sex with this woman. She's pure. She's upright. Um, So the idea of Abraham having a pure lineage here is going to be held intact. I think it's cool how Abimelech shows kindness in the face of being wronged. Instead of Abraham asking for forgiveness and Abraham giving gifts to the king, this king is amazingly gracious in that he gives gifts to the person who wronged him in order to make it right. Really, between Abraham and Abimelech here, Abimelech's the one acting like the true king. Uh, And he's doing it out of obedience to God, which is another example of God can use anyone he wants. And if the righteous people don't do what they're supposed to do, God's going to use anyone he wants to to do the right thing and make it right. Thus she was rebuked is an interesting thing, and it's a cue to a judicial ruling. Um, In the New King James Version, it reads, Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everyone uh, that she is rebuked or this is vindicated. In the King James, it says, Behold, he is the a covering of the eyes unto all thee that are with thee and all others. Thus she was reproved, which is an interesting way to say it. Um, all of these passages, everything I just read, is only three words in the Hebrew. Kekuth means vindication, a covering, or a veil, as in a wedding. When you put a veil over someone, it's supposed to be a covering or a shelter for them. Um, and that covering protects you spiritually until the day of your marriage when you pull the veil off and the covering's gone in Jewish tradition. And you don't need that covering because your husband will be there for you and protect you and guard you. Ayin, the second word, is to behold. It's a judicial term that a king would use to say, I want everyone in the room to see this and verify it and be witness to this thing I'm about to do. And yakak means to be corrected or to be made right. Notice how neither of the translations really capture that idea, but he's proclaiming a judicial judgment. And he's saying, I'm going to make this right and balance the scales. I want everyone to see it, that Sarah has a covering over her. She is protected. Um, So he pays the silver. It's a covering before everyone. And he's judiciously making this right or concluding it with the single word, yakak. Overall, this is a kingly thing. It's something a king would do. It's not a reprimand of Sarah. So we use the word rebuked, and we think of that like a reprimand in our language, but it's not at all a reprimand. In fact, that wouldn't really fit with the story if it was. Uh, To cover someone in the ancient world was to respect them, to honor them. Uh, To be uncovered or to be put naked was to dishonor or disregard someone. So Abimelech has come to really respect, and he's elevating Sarah as and giving her a a status that he doesn't have to give to her, um, which might be that in the time she spent in his harem when he was sick, maybe Sarah was the one that was taking care of everybody because she wasn't sick and all of the wives and other people weren't, which we're going to see in a couple verses or in the next verse. Um, remember, God told Abimelech that Abram was a prophet, and when Abram prays for you, everything will get fixed. So, all of this, this judicial thing, Abraham then responds to it in verse 17. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children. So Sarah had to be in this household for over a month or so for them to realize that they weren't bearing children because none of them were getting pregnant. Um, So then they started to bear children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This implies that she would have been there a while, at least a couple months. Abraham then is set right. He actually, God waits on Abraham's prayer, which I think is pretty cool. Like God's elevating Abraham here, but he didn't really need to. Um, Abraham should have prayed first instead of at the end of the story. If he would have just come to Abimelech and said, 
you know, Lord, help me deal with Abimelech, and he would have just been honest with them, things probably could have gone a lot better. I think it's interesting when non-Christian secular mentors show us how to be graceful and holy in ways that sometimes our Christian mentors don't. And I'll give you one example of that. When I was in grad school, my advisor was this wonderful guy, um, gracious, kind, wonderful. I don't think he was really living for Jesus in the way that I try to do. Um, but I remember we had this project, and grad students get really finicky in these highly competitive grad schools, and they kind of compete for who gets the attention and who's going to get the credit. We had this one project where there was uh, another grad student. She really didn't do anything on the project. So when I gave stuff to Kurt, I listed everyone who participated. And she'd come like one day and like didn't really make it the rest of the time. And Kurt just wrote back and he just said, make sure you put so-and-so's name on it. And just at the bottom, just put inclusion is better than exclusion. Just as a general principle, just be nice. It doesn't matter. Everyone who knows who did the work on it. And so there's that part of me that was all like, but that's not fair, they didn't do any of this stuff. But then I prayed about it and I realized, wow, God's teaching me through this guy how to just be nice and just include people. It doesn't really matter who gets the credit. It all should go to God anyways. So why do we need that credit for ourselves? It's interesting that God doesn't need us to do his work. He uses Abimelech in this situation. We need God, but God doesn't need us. And I think that's a major theological concept that we got to get our heads around as a Christian people. We're not somehow God's gift to God. Um, um, but God is his gift to us and it does go that way so it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing or how far you've fallen or what kind of sin you go back into like Abraham God's going to continue to teach you and bring people into your life that can guide you in the right direction if you prayerfully consider and follow those uh, those people um, you can get closer and closer to God and what you're doing and Abraham of course comes back into the fold of God and I think he's been reprimanded here and we will follow up with his story in chapter 21 next week. So we'll do that. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we love you. We love your word. Lord, thank you for stories of heroes. Uh, Abraham's lifted up so high by the Jewish people and by our own Christian traditions, Lord. Uh, he's the father of Israel and we sing songs about him and we celebrate him, but thank you for giving us an honest portrayal of his mistakes, his life, because Lord, we make mistakes too. Lord, we constantly turn our heads back to the world for some sort of joy, guidance, excitement. Um, but Lord, you don't, you've told us to turn our tents towards you, to face you, to live for you, to honor you in all things. But we start that, Lord, and we should always start that in prayer. Um, when we make our own decisions, Lord, we tend to just do the kinds of things that Abraham did. We just make mistakes, we screw things up. But Lord, let us follow you in, in where we work and how we do our work. Lord, let us not judge people because they're not following you right now because you still might speak through them to us. Um, but Lord, help us not to compromise our holiness with the world either like Lot did. Lord, help us to see the contrast between Lot and Abraham and choose to be more like Abraham, Lord, and to choose to do that as best we can. Thank you for forgiving us our sins, but Lord, help us to forgive the sins of other people, to not be judgy over them, to not think that that's our job, Lord, that's your job. You know how to judge, and as fearful as that is for us, as scary as that is, Lord, you know how to destroy worlds and cities, and you can destroy at a drop, but it's not our job to do that. It's our job to turn towards you, to look to the hills for our salvation, uh, and to know that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, Lord, to serve you and be your servants. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these folks. Uh, and thank you for us being able to share uh, study together. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.